Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project Podcast. I am here with Coral Brown today, who is known and loved in both her local community and around the world. Coral is a mother, a Dharma dweller, and a teacher of teachers. She is known for her integrative, lighthearted approach that fuses the energetic, creative energy of vinyasa yoga with her experience as a holistic counselor. Coral is a licensed mental health counselor and draws on 20 years of experience in yoga, philosophy, and holistic counseling to provide fertile open space for the processes of healing and transformation. Her teachings are fueled by the desire to reveal and cultivate the essence of our individual and collective dharma and instill it into every aspect of our being. Yay! Hey, Coral! Hey! (laughs) Wow. Talk about a drum roll, right? When you said that, instead of a drum roll, there was this giant thunder roll outside. So, hello. I know, and that same thunder is coming my way. <laughs> we're in the middle of the storm. I know, but you know what? It's We've needed it. I think we're, I'm like loving the, I love it when it starts to get kind of like this, almost in the summer, that heat kind of electric feeling in the air. Well, it certainly matches our culture right now. So I think it's it's in alignment. It sure is. And on that topic, I would love to actually start out just so for my audience, just to unpack Dharma for a second. Yeah, it's funny when you when you were reading that bio, I was like, oh, yeah, I wrote down Dharma. Let's talk about that because it's yeah, for a second. Sure. <laughs> Dharma is most likely translated uh, as far as people are considering when they talk about either Buddhism or Hinduism, Dharma is that which supports. That is the actual translation, the more literal translation, uh, that which supports. However, most people would say duty or purpose um, when they're talking about Dharma. And I think that kind of puts a little too much weight on it. And if, if you look at it and say, what's my purpose? What's my duty? That's a really daunting question. And that's, you know, life's holy grail. What am I here for? And and often people get so overwhelmed with that, that they don't move forward. And they just think of all that they're not. And where are they missing the mark? But if you look at the concept of Dharma as the literal translation, which again, is that which supports, then it opens it up to, oh, well, that which supports this room is that load-bearing wall. That which supports my body is my spine. So it helps you maybe look at it from a different perspective where it's more based on alignment. Um, Are you living in alignment with yourself, with your values, with your virtues? Are you remembering your true nature? Yoga Ayurveda specifically tells us that suffering, the root of all suffering is when we forget our true Mm. nature. And actually, the full statement is when we forget that our true nature is spirit or source or whole. So living in alignment with Dharma or being a Dharma dweller is like I'm constantly looking for that thread of being in alignment with myself and what I believe. And, you know, the, to me, the definition of yoga is is vast, right? But it's it's also very simple in that it means to remember. And when I am living in yoga 
in my yoga, when I'm living the practice of yoga, when I'm feeling in alignment with myself, when I've remembered my true nature, that is yoga. That's, that's the feeling of wholeness. And the feeling of separateness is a cause of forgetting. Mm -hmm. When I forget my true nature, when I forget that I belong, when I forget that I'm whole and complete, when I start to spiral and think or fear or judge or shame and all, you know, all of those, those different emotions, that pulls me out of alignment with my dharma and with myself. So, you know, dharma is definitely something that you can pin down a little bit more clearly or a lot more clearly. And I, I do that work with people as I, I help them to come up with a dharma statement, sort of like a mission statement. But it's just a personal statement that you it serves as a filter and you can run through this filter, anything that's that's conflict or that is, you know, questionable and and see if it if it fits through this filter then then yeah it's an alignment or no it's not you know i love there's an article i think that you wrote called the search for meaning but it's me capitalized and then you know the a n i n g yeah. in lower case and i loved that because it's kind of pointing to this whole conversation around dharma and i wondered if you could talk more about you know that that's helping people in their search for the me in their meaning. Mm, yeah. And, you know, life, the purpose of life is to have meaning. Um, it's not to be happy. It's not to, you know, have X, Y, or Z. It's to have meaning. And yeah, the first two letters of that are me. So to to be capital mm. S self-realized, and that's a whole conversation, um, unpacking what that means. But basically, the, the self or the source or that spark in a non-dualistic world anyway, or non-dualistic perspective, we are going under the assumption that the self and the source is in all. And there is, there is one, and in that one is grand amount of diversity. So if you can find your thread and your, your spark and realize, like really realize that self within, that capital S source, self, soul, what there's so many names for it, that that anchors or tethers you to your sense of meaning in the world. And it's not an external locus of control. It's more of an internally based faith driven, or what's called in yoga, called Shraddha. So I really love helping people weed out limiting beliefs and weed out cultural conditioning. And whether that cultural conditioning is from their family of origin culture or for the greater culture at large, but to just start to, to take out what no longer fits and no longer serves and then see what you're you're left with. Yeah, you know, it's so important. I, I feel like so much of my work these days is around kind of this process of unbecoming, right? We, we talk about mm -hmm. all of yeah. the ways in which we're, uh, we're oftentimes trained, right? The training ground of our social conditioning, uh, our family of origin, our cultural influences. And I think it's so important for women, especially, uh, I don't want to exclude men here at all, but women, especially to really kind of look at all of the ways, right, that we have been taught to kind of behave or be or fit into, you know, a certain way of being. And what I'm finding that's happening the world over really 
is that there's this process happening globally as well as at an individual level of this unbecoming and it can it can look unbecoming while it's happening right yeah yeah so um yeah I love I love this and I so tell me just give me a little bit of background if you don't mind and reveal a little bit more just about how you got into this work and kind of what, how has your dharma or your understanding of meaning in your life shifted over the course of the last few years? Oh, I'm going to need a written <laughs> transcript of that question um, to unpack it line by line. I, and I also just realized what you were referencing when you referenced the article, um, Search for Meaning, that was the Mantra Magazine article. I was thinking it was something from Yoga Journal, but it was the Mantra Magazine article, which is my like, little tell-all where I talk about I think they use the, 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 the catchphrase lines, depression, sexuality, searching, taking on personas. You know, that's, that was the grab um, for the headliner of the article. But yeah, so depression, <laughs> the darkness. And, you know, we were talking before we hit the record button about being messy and embracing your messiness. And I've always had, I think it was from Andrew Harvey. He said one time when we were talking and I said, I felt like I was a wreck. And he said, you're a mm. divine wreck, you're a divine, beautiful wreck of a mess or something to that effect. And I was like, yes, permission to be exactly where I am. And not only permission to be there, but to embrace it. And that's the essence of Tantra as far as how it it works in my life. My life practice is to be where I am and to to fully embrace and integrate it rather than splinter and compartmentalize it. So historically speaking, how did I get here? I was, I've always loved philosophy and just sort of the shadow side of thought and feeling and human nature. And when I was a kid, I loved Greek mythology and I was raised Catholic, Catholic school, even though I lived on a commune in Alaska for the first few years of my life. And uh, I had a lot of um, polar opposites happening. So I think that's that's a great original practice. That's yoga is to to merge the opposing aspects of yourself and find the common ground. So, you know, I loved looking deeper under the hood of Catholicism and kind of where the contradictions coming in and the Greek mythology. And then anyway, I ended up studying philosophy in undergraduate school really as a way to get around my math credit. <laughs> I took a logic class because I kept failing math and I excelled at the logic class and I just kept taking philosophy classes and then I had a minor and then it was a major and the practical side to my degree is I, my other major was public administration, which I honestly got through that, that part of college by watching the West Wing. <laughs> oh, that, that is was, so good. <laughs> they did a much better job um, than my professors did. That is um, so good. Down that information for me. But anyway, you know, I was studying philosophy and I loved Hinduism and I f really felt seen and to you know if we were to talk about the chakras and the basic needs and needs motivating behavior being seen is one of our very very most basic needs and in hinduism i saw the reflection of what i believed in and its inclusivity and its holism and i really loved it and so i really focused on eastern philosophy and ethics as you know for my philosophy degree but my mom who was practicing yoga at the time this is in the 90s she was practicing actually at all that matters which is our local studio here in rhode island and um She's like, oh, you should do yoga if you're loving all this philosophy and yoga stuff. I was like, mom, yoga's a fad. Madonna's <laughs> doing it. And, you know, she just took a beat and said, well, it's a 5,000-year-old fad and you should try it. So I did. And I've told that story a bunch of times. And every single time I feel myself transported right back in that moment. And I thank my mom. Every time I tell the story later on that day, I call my mom and say thank you. Um, 
so yeah, she really steered me in the right direction with that one. And so I did, I started practicing yoga and I actually got a CD and some VHS tapes. Started practicing in my room. Rodney was there in his little bikini. And I told him years later, we were in an elevator at a conference. I'm like, I used to practice in my bedroom. Remember you? (laughs) Colleen was so good. He looked shocked because the Me Too, you know, he's just always ready, like to be on guard, I think. And Colleen knew what I meant. She just started laughing. But anyway, um, my the CD that I practiced along to was who eventually became my root teacher, Shiva Ray. And I just loved it. And I loved her. And I loved the audio and the pullout poster that came with it. And I worked for American Airlines at the time. And I traveled all over the world. I, uh, I always had this poster and the CD with me. And then um, I did a, uh, an Iyengar training at first. And I was coming from the school of thought that you can't teach something until you've practiced it for like a decade, you know, from my philosophical roots. And the teacher on the Iyengar retreat who said, you should teach, you have something about you. She actually said, you have a light, blah, 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 you know, and, and um, I'm diminishing it right now by doing it, that saying it that way. But I wasn't able to really let that seep in at that moment. But I was like, okay, I'll do a teacher training. Another like besides the Iyengar one that I was doing, which was just for personal practice and Iyengar is a form-based, alignment-based uh, approach to yoga asana. And so I came home and I did a vinyasa style. Woo, is that thunder? That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I came home and did a vinyasa style, uh, Jiva Mukti influenced training here. And uh, then I met Shiva and started studying with her. And I took a course from her at uh, Kripalu. And then the following year, I assisted, started assisting her, California Yoga Journal Conference. And then I would just, since I had the American Airlines gig, I could fly anywhere. And I was not a flight attendant. I was actually, I worked at the counter and I worked on the ramp. I parked the planes and I threw the bags and I drained the lab and all that stuff. And I loved it. And so I, I just traveled more weekends than not to be with Shiva and to be in the yoga community. And I really felt a sense of uh, a tribe and a community there that forced me to change and grow and you know I was in a relationship that was coming up on like 14 years and it was outdated and I needed to go but didn't know how and couldn't and eventually I did and I I think what you know once you start growing you you, you can't stop once you know you can't forget and once you walk you don't crawl anymore you know but all of that said I was still crawling and and so finally I like to get shoved out of the nest rather than push so I finally left and you know, within months, as as I returned to teaching and, and traveling with Shiva, everyone just kept saying, like, you look so much different, you look so much lighter. And I literally got physically lighter, and I got brighter. And I just started living more in alignment with myself and with the path that I was supposed to be on. And ever since then, I've just kind of been pulled along on it. And I've been incredibly fortunate to contribute to Yoga Journal in the magazine on the covers and, you know, do all kinds of stuff I never thought I would do or never ever planned to do or expected to do. And, um, you know, I keep showing up and I keep saying if I even put a little bit more effort in there, I bet I'd be surprised, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I am. And I do need to push a little bit harder, I think, to, to, to keep living in alignment (laughs) with my Dharma and, you know, the world is changing, has changed, and it's shoving us all right now. So I'm kind of happy to be in that state where it's not my choice anymore. I have to change. Yeah, well, and and I think that there's so much truth to almost like what, what you're saying actually makes me think of the relief that I almost felt when a lot of this started kind of becoming more front and center and, you know, no longer uh, are we allowed to or 
do we have the luxury of continuing to numb out about it or distract ourselves? Like, I feel like we're all being forced to really look at what's getting revealed here. And it's this big, hot mass um, of power and control and outdated systems. And just, uh, you know, I think, yeah, that it's really, it's really shifting all of us. And there's, there's a sigh of relief here too, because I think that, there's something to keeping it all together that can not serve us at so many levels. Yes. And I, I, you know, it's, I think we are both in a position of privilege where we can say these things. Uh, we haven't lost our livelihood. We haven't lost our homes or our health, but you know, we're able to ride this wave and not just strive, but, or survive, but, you know, strive and thrive as well. Um, and to see that it's not as easy for many, 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 many people, but it is a necessary change. And there's so many, there's, there's such compassion and empathy for, for the people that I know. I and and of course, no, I love it. I, I'm, I, I'm going to have him keep it in because I always think, you know, that there's that the kind of out exterior or nature, right. That wants to be like emphasis, right. And there's the thunderbolt. It's so good. Yeah, for sure. When COVID first started, really, the like the second or third week, I remember saying, this isn't going to stop mm-hmm. until we've all gotten the message, until it's written across each and every one of our hearts that we need to come together. We need, you know, all of the, the stuff we've been trying to work on, we <laughs> meaning like yoga, not yoga of Instagram, but, you know, yoga of 5,000 years. This is not a fad and it needs to resurface and we need to see each other really be see, see and be seen, which is called Darshan. And, and it's terribly painful to see the suffering that's happening, but I'm seeing it from a distance, you know? So it's, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not aware of it. You know what I mean? And I like do. I'm sitting here and saying, Oh yeah, this is great. This I is know. Yep. Like, oh and it, God, and it's certainly cost, not you know? without, you know, we can, we can talk about these things, but it it is, I think it's really important to say the things that you've said, you know, about just understanding that, you know, as two white women, there's, there's a certain amount of privilege that we've lived and that that's not the truth for so many of our brothers and sisters. No, it's not the truth. It's the reality of the water that we're swimming in. So we don't even see it. Um, but I think we're, that's what I mean. We're no. being called. And it's not gonna so that, that seems to be a great segue actually into your love of kind of the Shakti and the Shiva. And I would love you to go into that a little bit more. So Shiva and Shakti, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good story. Actually, one of my students just said, told, told, <laughs> you tell such a good yarn. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't heard that statement since my grandmother. But I love mythology and storytelling and just this, the impact of myth and mythos, right? It means story of the people. So how we, how we relate and understand and you see cultural, right, cultural shifts right now. You know, I was watching, waiting to see when it would hit commercials and when it would hit mainstream and what it would look like. And it just like fascinates me. And so many of us will be learning a lot of this, the lessons from right now and being educated by Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Or, but you know, it's it's all story, and it can be very powerful, positive or negative. But so yes, Shiva and Shakti is it's mythology, and it's a way of weaving uh, an awareness into people's minds and helping them understand a certain certain uh, field of consciousness. So Hindu mythology talks about Shiva and Shakti, and you could say Shiva or Shiva. I usually say Shiva to differentiate between my teacher Shiva. But anyway, Shiva and Shakti are 
the aspects of masculine and feminine. And that's just such a simplified way of putting it. And I think we really get, we really make ourselves small when we are limited to defining concepts by one word. And so if we were to say masculine, it fills in a lot of blanks um, in people's minds and they make a lot of assumptions and they, and you know, the left brain says, okay, I, I, I can identify that. I can source its meaning. I know what you're saying. And then the conversation continues. But if you were to say discrimination, discernment, active, solar, potent, that's describing the qualities, the attributes of what the word masculine means. I don't mean masculine as in male or female. I just mean the concept. If you were to say feminine, instead of saying feminine, people might think, okay, woman, or whatever they might think. If you were to say cooling, lunar, creative, feeling, emotional, uh, fluid, active at the same time, fluid and active, soft and hard, like um, mm. complex, now you're describing femininity. So every human being has all of these attributes, the masculine and the feminine, the lunar and the solar, the ha and the ta. And these are all different ways of saying essentially the same thing. So Hindu mythology does a wonderful job of personifying these concepts. And Shiva is the masculine form and Shakti is the feminine form. And if you were to take this one more layer into the, the system of Hindu philosophy, you would have these words Purusha and Prakriti. And Purusha would be in alignment with Shiva and Prakriti would be in alignment with Shakti. Easy way to remember that is they both end in the same vowel, I and I and A and A. Um, and so Shiva or Purusha, you could say, is universal consciousness or the soul or it's the seer. Uh, if there's a bus, Shiva is the one that's driving it. But it's not going anywhere unless there's a bus, right? So Shakti is the bus. Shakti is, is nature. Prakriti is nature. It's everything you're made of. It's the cosmos. It's that tree that I'm looking at. It's that, that element of the tree that's within me and the fire and the water and the ether. So to have all of those elements take form, it's through Prakriti, which manifests as Shakti. And she is the goddess. And Shiva, you know, and she has a whole bunch of stories about her. And Shiva has a whole bunch of stories about him. And the cosmology, the creation stories of the two of them coming together, once they come together is when creation is manifest. Otherwise, it's inert because the two isolated can't really do anything. They have to merge. They have to come together and integrate in order for everything we see, feel here to exist. So everything that is your physical body, uh, your thoughts, your mind, that's all Shakti. That's all nature. That's all Prakriti. The, the feelings, the, the things you can't see, the things that are beyond name and form, which we have trouble understanding because we understand with name and form, that's Shiva, that's Purusha, that's the, the soul and beyond, or Atman, or Turiya. There's you know, lots and lots of names for it. So honoring, instead of separating, but honoring the integration of Shiva and Shakti in each of us and in one another and, and figuring out our own natural balance with, are we, maybe I'm in a feminine body, but I have more masculine or Shiva-oriented traits, you know, or vice versa. Mm. So for us to, to know thyself, Svadhyaya, self-study, and, and to do so objectively, you know, that's, that's the sadhana or the practice is to observe without judgment. Well, and therein, I want to circle back to your love of the shadow sides of, you know, that you kind of had talked about your, your kind of love or your curiosity, because what you just said is so 
you know, true and so, so beautiful and how you explained it and honoring the integration, but also really noticing where either we're not in alignment or where we have what I call shadow masculine feminine that's really unintegrated, out of balance, right? And I think we see a lot of that in the world right now. Yeah. And whenever there's that, whenever we're not in alignment, when, when we're not in Dharma, we're suffering. And, you know, that is, to my understanding anyway, the implementation of the caste system in India was based on this rule or of Dharma, which in some instances translates as law. Dharma is the law of the land. And if everyone does their job, then everything stands up just right. If all the columns are, are stacked accordingly and, and doing their job, then the world functions. But if one topples over, then everything else does. So in an effort to get around that problem, they decided, okay, you're born into your dharma. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to decide. This is who you are. You're a householder. You're a merchant. <laughs> um, you're a warrior. Well, obviously that didn't work out, but that was the, one of the intentions behind the creation of the caste system was to make it easier for us. So we didn't have to figure out our dharma. Well, that's human nature is to figure it out. And we have to go through the shadow. I think that's why I love Shiva because he is the shadow. He's dude is dreadlocked, ganja smoking, walking around in the crematorial grounds. Like in one of the the creation story, uh, Sati, who takes the form of Shakti, uh, her father is like, oh my God, you're not going to marry that guy, are you? Right? But but Shiva is where it's at. I mean, that darkness and that fertile soil, it's compost, it's, it's shit, but it's like you grow from it. So it's necessary and we have to have to integrate that in order to, to grow and to grow in alignment with ourselves because we're going to grow no matter what, but we go, go and grow in the wrong direction. We're going to suffer and we're going to end up back where we are to start again. So having been blessed with depression and um, just genetic, my mother, my grandfather, myself, you know, it's, it's given me deep insight into what darkness is. And, you know, I manage it. I help other people manage it. That's become part of my Dharma uh, as far as a mental health counselor, but I really, I'm drawn to it and I I'm drawn to it because it's something I've lived and I've had to find the ability to be comfortable in such discomfort. And that's a practice that we all need to need to learn. And again, now we're being forced to figure that out. Yeah. And blessed with depression. Like, I love that. I love that you said that. It's true. These are disguised gifts. You know, when that darkness or that wisdom of no escape kind of visits us, it can be a very fertile, like you said, discovering place. And I think it's where a lot of us are finding ourselves right now. And so... I just want to emphasize that or highlight that because I think that it's our tendency to kind of go into a despair or think that there's something wrong with us for having these feelings. Yeah. And our, our culture values logic over feelings and masculine over feminine. And oh my gosh, my favorite, the, um, the great evolutionary mystic Aurobindo says, if there is to be a future, it will wear a crown of feminine design. Um, if there is to be a future, it will wear a crown of feminine design. And you know, don't again, don't limit yourself to defining feminine as a woman or womanly. It's it's that intuitive sense, that subtle sense, that more right brain hemisphere, the unnamed, the unknown, like going into that void or that space. That is that's the leap of faith. And 
very few of us live from our intrinsic feminine strength and intelligence and we avoid it or we're not taught to embrace it. Right. And so that feminine design, the crown of the feminine design, what I'm making up is that's the creation place. Yes. That's the the nurturing, the receiving, the the intuitive, the feeling all of the ways I think in which we've really emphasized the opposite is now needing, we're needing both, but we need to kind of call in that, that feminine within ourselves and, and integrate it with the masculine. I think we're all, I think we're all feeling, uh, feeling in general and in our feeling we're healing and there's so much that's getting revealed right now in this, yeah. in this time frame. So important. Yeah. And you do, like you said, you do, you have to feel to heal. You can't go around it. You, you got to go through it. You got to go through it. And so I know you love this next subject. So I'm just going <laughs> to. I just pulled a card. Sorry, I just pulled them. I'm obsessed with these Kim Carnes, not Carnes, Kranz. No, Kr Kim Kranz. Kim Carnes was Betty Davis. The, the round ones, Kim, right? Yes. Kim Kranz, these, the wild unknown. She's an amazing artist and very steeped in yoga. Yeah. So I've got the round ones in my hand and I, I always have these and I have the, um, so those are the archetype ones. And then I have the animal ones as well. And I just pulled the B for the animal ones and the queen for the archetype ones. So yeah, of course you did. Okay. So right. what was your question? I'm well, going to look it up and I'll I have I'll the medicine cards right in front of me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to choose one for us too. Why not? Right. Okay. We'll just add it to the mix it. here. So I got how not, not supposed to be. <laughs> right. We talk about yeah, intuition, right? And the salmon, like they're programmed. They they listen to their intuition, even though it's taking them to their death. They do it anyway. Like that's, you know what I mean? Like we try to avoid everything uncomfortable. I love that you know it right off the bat because I have to like look it up. So that's what salmon is, right? Wisdom, inner knowing. Yes. Oh, so good. Okay. So here's the other piece. It teaches that even when the flow of life seems to push you back, you can tap the hidden resources of your human spirit and personal inner knowing. The journey may not be an easy one and the currents of public opinion may not be in your favor, but you can choose to honor the wisdom you carry and instinctually do what is right. Yes. Yeah. And so here's the subject, the goddess. Yeah. Mm, I love the goddess. I love the goddess, damn it. Um, there's so much... So there's this beautiful celebration called Navratri and Nava means nine. It's the nine festival, nine nights of festival or festivities. And so it honors the different facets of the goddess. And in, in, I think it's a beautiful experience for us all to witness because when we unpack the many faces of the goddess, we see the masculine and the feminine. So there's three nights that are dedicated to Saraswati. There's three nights that are dedicated to um, Lakshmi. And there's three nights that are dedicated to Durga. And Saraswati is the, the, the female incarnation of Shakti in the form of knowledge and wisdom. And she's the teacher and she's the creator. And she is the female counterpart of Brahma, who in the Hindu Trimurti or Trinity is the creator. Um, so she's the feminine aspect of that. Um, and, and Saraswati is who you would invoke. And remember these, let me back up for a second and just give a little disclaimer about Hindu mythology. It's not a multi, it's not a polytheistic religion, honestly. It's a, it's a mono. It's one. There's one God, but the God manifests in all and in many. So there's lots of different 
god heads or or representations or, or you know personifications of that one and that's what we all are is we're many manifestations and personifications of that one and so these original deities or gods are sort of the you know the main cast the characters that we refer to for inspiration so when when i'm say Ganesh. Ganesh is an easy one. I think most people, even if you don't practice yoga, you've heard Ganesh, this elephant headed, big belly guy. Most people would chant to Ganesh or invoke Ganesh because he's the remover of obstacles. So, and that's putting it very simply, but say I'm running to catch a flight. I wouldn't um, necessarily be chanting to Ganesh thinking literally fundamentally, he's going to come and like keep the plane there and not let it take off until I get there. But What's, what I'm doing is I'm invoking my own memory or my own sense of fierceness and power. And I can get through this. And even if the plane's gone, I'll figure it out. So Ganesh or Ganapat is the commander. He's the commander in chief. So to, to summon that aspect of myself that I maybe have been disconnected from by chanting something externally, and eventually you don't chant it even out loud. It's just internal and it's it's installed within you. But the the practices start from more of the outer realm or the gross realm and they get more subtle. So Saraswati is who I would invoke if I wanted to remember or or kind of be inspire myself to create or to study for a test or if I'm you know if I'm lecturing or teaching I have this big Saraswati that I I brought home she sat on my lap on the plane home from India this big mango wood Saraswati that <laughs> she's been with me every training that I've done here in Rhode Island anyway I don't take her on the road when I go it's a little too much but I've downsized I used to travel yeah. with an altar and like a, there were pop-up altars and all these things and now I'm like just all I need is my breath you know I've got it right here I've got my mantra in my breath but anyway so Saraswati is the aspect of the goddess that is the teacher and she's the wisdom she's that mother aspect and uh, and the father aspect as well that is education and then lakshmi is the aspect of of the mother or the source of the divine feminine that is uh she represents abundance fertility whether it's you know literal fertility having a baby or whether it's it's to 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 create or to to make space and it's said that the goddess doesn't come especially Lakshmi she really likes uh cleanliness and no clutter she's like the what's that lady's name Marie Kondo what's her name Mm -hmm. yes yes so it's like you clean out the space you open the window and she comes so it's Lakshmi is invoking abundance and um prosperity whether that's financial spiritual whatever it might be so at the opening of of any shop especially in India they would have a Lakshmi puja or celebration um so there's three days dedicated to Lakshmi and there's three days dedicated to to Durga who is the aspect of the divine feminine that is fierce as F, right? AF, right? She takes Ka- like Kali kind yeah, of Kali, energy. Ka- yeah, Kali yeah. Durga, very similar. Um, so she is the really the feminine principle of Shiva, who is all about transformation. Shiva is not necessarily the destroyer, but but the transformer. And you need mm. that, you need to till the soil, you need the transformation so that you can create again, you know, the, the apple rots if it doesn't get eaten. And there's a reason why we only have pregnancy for a certain amount of months, which is 10, not nine, they lie. Um, but anyway, so having the, the multiplicity of the, the feminine characteristics and have them be so intense and masculine and not just the, oh, let me hold you and nurture you. Yes, that's, that's there, but it's also let me take out my sword and cut off your head. There's so many Hindu uh, mythology stories that involve decapitation. And it's not because it's violent. It's because you're cutting off the ego. You're cutting off the shit that gets in the way that makes you forget 
it's like that's your punishment and now you know person usually gets a new head and they somehow are fine but that's why it's a story Um, But, you know, cutting off the proverbial head of all the stuff that gets in our way and having somebody around you that's going to say, your shit stinks, you know, like it's time to do something about that rather than, no, no, everything's great. You're fine. You know, like we need that adversity to grow and we need friction to move. So that's sort of Durga's role. And, And so anyway, to have these different facets of the mother and celebrate all of them, the painful ones, the, the, you know, the growth pains the the growing pains that are are real you know but necessary so yeah i love looking at the goddess in in all of her aspects and respecting all of them i really uh, even in the way that, right that you're kind of sharing with all of us about these how to use the myth the mythos the story of the people the how to embrace really these, and I'm, I, I might be wrong here, but I'm calling them kind of the archetypes of the goddess oh, and yeah. the god. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of tentatively asking this next question because I'm not, I don't have it completely formed, but it's something around, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, I almost want to say like a lot of what we're experiencing right now is kind of the impact of forgetting. And I I just kind of wonder, right, like cosmically, this whole idea that we're hearing so many emergent themes about, you know, the return of the feminine, the return of the divine feminine and kind of it coming in to meet the rise of the divine masculine. I'm just wondering if you have kind of a way to encapsulate or explain how you understand that. Um, Yeah, I think that what I mentioned earlier, as far as the two being separate and distinct, doesn't function, it doesn't work. And so we've been separate and distinct, and it's not working, it's not functioning anymore. So we have to be integrated, we have to acknowledge all the aspects of the self, the shadow, the stuff that we'd rather not look at, the stuff that, you know, we want everyone to see. We need to shine the light in in the shadow. There's this beautiful um, little book called The Tiny Book of Human Shadow by Robert Bly. And in the first chapter, I think it's the first chapter, it's called The Long Bag We Drag Behind Us. And he talks about this this bag that we basically each get at birth and we're born fully complete and whole and we start to lose aspects of ourselves because our culture conditions us to think that's not good this isn't good you shouldn't be that you're not supposed to be funny you're not you know some of them are right like yeah you can't hit your sister okay so I put that in the bag you're not supposed to be funny you're supposed to be smart I put that in the bag and you're dragging this bag around it gets very heavy and it's the best parts of yourself and you know in many cases and typically what happens in our 20s or 30s or whatever in our lives we're we put that bag down and whatever happens to force us to do that, it's usually something cataclysmic or some sort of transformation, whether it's a divorce or a death or a loss, or you end up in a container of like-minded people, like a yoga teacher training or, you know, counseling or or some sort of community that sees all of your aspects, even a a partner who's like, are you kidding? You're so funny. And the person like, I'm not funny. That's a bad thing. I don't value that. No, but that's who you, that's actually who you are. And when you deny who you are, you're suffering and you're, you're taking depression mm. medication, you're taking this and you're taking, so 
Robert Bly says, you know, there's this point where you put this bag down and we start pulling stuff out of it. And we're like, oh my God, I love this part of myself. Let me put this back on. You know, so it's this reintegration of the self and it's happening on an individual and collective level at this point. And if we were to look at this through the lens of the chakras, let me just kind of high speed it. The the psychology of the chakras, they manifest in behaviors. And so the and the behaviors needs motivate behaviors and a, a culture can be really defined by their behaviors and their beliefs, uh, whether they're limiting or real. So if we do a beliefs inventory, if we, we, we take the time to stop and ask, is what I'm believing what I'm seeing? Because we see what we believe, right? We're looking to corroborate our stories. That's called the confirmation bias. So the, the muladhar, the root chakra, these psychosomatic processing centers, they're also stages of development. So when we're little, little kids, we're operating at the level of our lowest unmet needs, and we're dependent on other people to meet those needs. How those needs actually get met shape us. They shape our strategies and how we figure out how to get our needs met in the future. And often, like my good friend Austin says, you know, you have to update your iOS. You got to Keep updating your operating systems. And we forget to do that. We're operating with very outdated beliefs and, and strategies. So if you were to look at muladhara, which means the root, it means the anchor. It's like we like everything when it's steady and comfortable and safe. It's the four pillars of um, having having physical health, having livelihood to support your like security, basically, so that you can buy food, having relationships being nurtured is one of the most fundamental needs and we forget that but as mammals it's biologically our imperative is to be nurtured and to nurture so if we were to describe that in as far as a culture and a time in our culture we could say like the 50s were very much about being grounded being at home like you look at how that's portrayed through via hollywood and through mythos in the story and it was leave it to beaver and you know all of those very uh, sound family units. And then you look at where we are today and it's so very different, right? But then the second chakra, which is about expression and movement and adapting, um, you know, that's the seventies. We started moving, we started rising, we started changing. The element here is water. So it's like, it can't be contained. Uh, you know, when it gets contained, it turns stagnant and just dies. And so we can't thrive in that sort of environment. So water adapts, it moves, it figures out its its course. And that's really where we are now. Again, right, we've adapted, we've figured out through this COVID and quarantine, figured out how to get our needs met, how to see each other, how can how to connect, how to nurture, see and be seen, even though we hadn't couldn't physically be together. And the third chakra is fire. It's the vision. It's like it's your purpose in action. You're out in the world and you're defining yourself by your actions and by your beliefs. And, you know, that's very much the eighties and, you know, everything was big and powerful and fire. If it's not tended, it goes wild. So, you know, after that point, we start tipping into the heart chakra, which is anahata and it's, it's stainless in its clarity. It means literally the word anahata means unstruck. So on its own, it vibrates and it beats and it beats and it pulses. The heart chakra space between the heart chakra and the third chakra as far as the location in the body the proximity is pretty far relatively speaking when you look at the first three they're very close together so i call it the line of transformation it's this leap that we have to take from the fire to get out of the fire and into space into air into the vastness of the heart and the heart the sense that goes along with the heart is touch and so feeling the sense of of just feeling or touching and being touched and how you leave your mark on the world. And we've been pushing and pushing and pushing the container, the envelope to get to this heart chakra state. We've been riding the route, the second, the third, 
And there's all different, you know, uh, subcultures that are still in the first chakra, the second chakra, the third chakra, whatever it might be. And we're in all at once, just like we are in real time. But if you just look at the landscape of time and generations, we're really moving into heart chakra now more than ever. And I've been saying this for years that we're like moving toward it, but now we're in it and it's, it's messy. Like you're saying it, it but we got to go through that messiness. We've got to get burnt. We've got to go through it in, in order to flow and, and see it from above and gain the perspective and really have a deep understanding of holding all of the aspects of the self, all the messy stuff, the the stuff that, you know, we don't want to remember and we don't want to talk about holding that front and center, but also holding a sense of faith and wisdom and, and the future and doing that holding it all together. And then, you know, the chakras that are above the heart further integrate and take us out into a greater dimension of communication and um, understanding of one another beyond the I, but more around the we and the whole and the one. I love, I want to, I want to say that I, I'm hearing a confidence and a trust in your voice when you talk about this. And so now I want to go into motherhood. (laughs) And the reason why is because I think that there's, there's this, I, Hmm. And again, I'm checking in. I don't know if this is true, but what I'm hearing in your voice is this confidence and this trust that everything that we're going through is necessary and good and messy. And I'm wondering if that confidence and that trusting stays as you're raising your son. And if you as a mother kind of can fall into, you know, just the trap of, or the fear, the wondering, like, oh my gosh, like what kind of a world is, is he going to have when he's older? Is there going to be one? Like, I'm just wondering if you can talk to that for a minute. Yeah. I um, just had an experience yesterday and all of last night, I actually slept with Seamus holding him <laughs> um, because I really needed it. And he ends up sleeping with us most nights anyway, but like I made the choice to go into him my husband had an altercation with someone on the, mm. the beach um, and the guy was charging at my husband and yelling at him about America and that he was going to kick my husband's ass and he's going to kill him. And this is in front of my son, Seamus, who's almost four. And it was over. Like my mother had said something under her breath about he, the guy wasn't wearing a mask. And so, yes, it really sent me into a tailspin. And most days I'm an idealist. My husband's a realist. So he's always keeping me check and check and saying, you know, um, that I'm not living in like, you know, perfect fairyland, but which I know I'm not, but that really brought me to my knees and in the reality of, yes, my, my, my son's going to see conflict, but he's just seen it and he'd never seen anything like that before. And what kind of fear is that? It just brought everything front and center as far as him and the world as it will be for him when, when he grows and as it is now and how he's perceiving it and what he's learning from it and, and how it's, you know, impacting his development. I I really just, I I had my, my moments, I had the night with it and, you know, I woke up today, like it's, it's going to be okay because we're, he's resilient and he needs to understand and see all this stuff. I can't keep him in a vacuum and whatever it is, he'll adapt and, you know, we'll find the best way around it. And that's the best I can do. But I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still teaching because I'm still learning and you, you teach what you need to learn. Right. So I think 
Seamus will be my teacher forever. And so will the students of yoga and, and all my books and, you know, everything. So it's a, it's, it's, there's no end. There's no mastery. It's, it's a constant process. Yeah, there's no end. And and I guess where I want to tap in a little bit more and and hear more too is just going to a beginning because for so for our listeners, what's what are some kind of beginnings like if if you're listening and you know, you've not done yoga before, you've maybe done a couple of classes, what would you say is kind of most available to or what kinds of of transformations and or access points do you feel that yoga provides that other other practices don't okay so saying yoga assuming you mean you're referring to the physical practice Mm -hmm. the yoga asana going to a yoga class which in in this world currently is not really happening so it's online or it's streaming or you know like I used to do it in my room with the cd now you can do it on zoom whatever but yoga the difference I'd say between yoga asana yoga poses as compared to another fit fitness orientation is that there's a certain intimacy in yoga that you can't take the yoga out of yoga. Even if you call yoga goat yoga or hip hop yoga or glow stick yoga, whatever, you can't get the yoga out of it. So I don't care if you do it at the gym or on zoom or wherever you, you know, really if you're just walking, you can be doing the yoga, but yoga does you in the way it works. If we unpacked it from a scientific perspective we'd see one version and if we unpacked it from more of a spiritual perspective we'd actually end up seeing the same they meet uh one end on the the spectrum even though they seem like they're at opposite points you know yoga asana helps take us into parasympathetic and that's where the body can heal and that's where the mind can heal so parasympathetic nervous system being the rest and digest and i can relax i feel safe and i can socially regulate and i can go to sleep or enjoy i can put my guard down Yoga works toward getting us there. How does it do that? You go to a class, the teacher's hopefully creating a safe environment. In my training, I teach the sequencing style with the three pillars of safe, effective, and inspired sequencing. So you have to have the safety first for the nervous system to let the yoga happen. So the person feels safe. They feel like they can trust the teacher. They're listening. The teacher is constantly cueing them back into feeling their own body in space and where's your body in space and oh and inhale and exhale and even though the the people are going to breathe no matter what but we still keep telling them to do it because it's bringing their attention back to it over and over and over again bringing your attention there one pointedness your attention is now not on the things that you have to think about or worry about so it's this constant calling you back to center how do you feel what do you need what are you doing where's your body in space be in your body so it's a it's it's a way of feeling embodied and that triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. And in that state, the, the hormones that are released and like the feeling state that's cultivated is in yoga, we would call it uh, um, the Anandamaya Kosha or the bliss body. And in the science, we, we talk about the opiate response, right? So it's, it's interesting that there is that crossover and that it is the East and West meeting right there and meeting at one point. But anyway, yeah, I, I feel like that's the difference in going to or taking a yoga class. And where do you start? I mean, this is like a yoga saying, but you start where you are. Start simple. Don't compare your beginning to someone else's middle or end. Don't look on Instagram and hashtag yoga and see, oh, that's what yoga looks like. It's more what yoga feels like. It cultivates a feeling state. And from that feeling state, you're then 
you you can experience a more sense of wholeness of identity of remembering who you are and again that's my definition of yoga is when i remember when i'm feeling that state of bliss and wholeness and completeness like i'm not worried about all the other stuff and who thinks what and what i'm going to do or where i just like feel i feel complete and i feel seen and by myself not by somebody else i'm having yeah i was just going to say i'm having a revelation right now which is like it's 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 internal it's it's funny cuz it's of course you know like yes we're using the body right we're we're but, but there's there's this it's about what's happening inside of us. It's not about looking outside yeah. of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a testament to yoga's efficacy is looking at the lost and found in any yoga studio. Because if you look in the lost and found in any yoga studio, you're going to find things that you say to yourself, how did that person get out of here without those things? Like their keys, their pants, their shoes, their like, people are just like, I don't care. I don't need anything. And they just kind of like <laughs> float out of the studio, you know, like, like that's how yoga works, you know, like when you leave the gym, you might have that buzz and I go to the gym, I do strength training. I love it. It's not, it's not the same, you know, it's necessary, but it's just not the same. You need strength and flexibility. Stira and Sukha, that's what makes the asana. And when you are in a yoga practice or at the gym, there, here's the challenge and the goal is to find both in the same, find the effort and the ease. And that's what we're saying about masculine and feminine. Like, everything that's going on in our culture right now can you embrace both there's this pose in, in yoga called utkatasana it's chair pose it's fear it's very it all it translates to awkward and fierce not chair but it looks like you're about <laughs> to sit in a chair that's not there so that's why people call it chair pose i get where the effort is happening in that pose because people grunt and groan and stop breathing and sweat but where's the ease you have to have the ease or the softness and maybe that's in your eyebrows and your face and your jaw and your shoulders but the rest of you, yes, working and efforting, but you still have to have the ease. So I'm also hearing that yoga is a, an amazing practice for integration of the masculine and the feminine in all of those ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, this has been like so enlightening and so revealing. I've loved every minute of this. So a couple more questions and then, you know, I would love to just kind of first find out where... What are you reading right now? Any anything? I know you're a mom of a young boy, but is there anything that you've read recently that you want to share with us? Yes, yes. The three books that I have right here, I'm obsessed with John O'Donohue right now. Anamkara, A N A M, Kara C A R A, which is it means translates from the Celtic to soul friend. The most beautiful book ever ever written. I've ordered it for literally all of my friends. They've all gotten it in the mail. Um, the Anamkara. <laughs> we have a fake book club. I send quotes every now and then, and you know, I guess actually it's turning into a real book club. But I love John O'Donohue's work. I have um, his book called Beauty coming in the mail. He's amazing, amazing um, Celtic poet, and um, I just I love the mystics, you know. But then I also have Master of You by Kate Stillman. That's Kate with a C, and she's an Ayurvedic. Um, she goes by the handle, I guess, Yoga Healer is her her brand. Um, but she's, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. She's a great business person and a great resource for information on Ayurveda. She's got a great podcast that very simply translates this, this ancient system and makes it very acceptable and digestible for the modern person. And then the third book is Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so that's, that's what I've got right here. And what's and who's that one by? Peaceful parent, happy kids. Doctor Doctor Laura Markham, Markham. Doctor Laura Markham. Yeah, 
I think it's the subtitle is like how to stop yelling and start connecting. Oh, so good. Well, and where can people find you just so that, you know, they can follow you? Yeah, I'm terrible <laughs> at showing up socially, um, but I'm going to make it, I'm going to do it even more. I'm, I'm really pushing myself up, but coralbrown.com and my Instagram is Coral Brown and my Facebook stuff is all Coral Brown. And my mission right now is to get my catalog, my webinar of like the psychology of the chakras up and running again on my website. It's on stored on Vimeo right now. And, and I'm going to start a little podcast sort of project, but I'm my next teacher training that I run in January here in Rhode Island is also going to be available virtual so that it'll be recorded and then people can come in and I'll have office hours and groups and we can connect. And so, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to be okay with offering a teacher training when there's no place to teach. Yeah. I think everybody's having to figure that whole new way out, right? Yeah. And I think I'm going to do a Facebook live or Instagram live or something conversation and just look it in the face and say, like, even if you did a teacher training last year, you could get a t job teaching yoga, you're going to make 25 or 35 bucks. So are you going to make that now? Maybe, maybe even more, actually, if you're doing it on Zoom or whatever, you know, but it's just it's a changing model. And I need to be able to feel sound offering, selling something really that, you know, that is clear rather than you know, so yeah, you right. Yoga teacher training, but you can't be a yoga teacher. <laughs> you know, it's more, it's, it's life training and um, you can teach actually. It's just changing. Well, again, thank you so, so much. I, I, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And for our listeners, um, we'll have all of Coral's links in all of the uh, notes in the show notes. And we'll also include, of course, the book recommendations and everything else. And Coral just, yeah. 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 You know what I'll do actually is I'll send you, Monica, my resource and reference list that I always send out to people after I do a workshop or something. And it's got my uh, most yes. reference, like Robert Bly. It's got the Buddha's brain, which, you know, when I was talking about confirmation bias and the left brain, right oh, brain. Oh, I would love that. Thank I'll you. I'll send you my resource list and you can tack that on. Thank you. I love what you're doing and I love to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Coral. More to be revealed, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.